Mindset Game podcast, and today's guest I've got Andy Lane. So welcome on the show, Andy. Welcome, James. So can you give a brief introduction to who you are and what you do? Um, brief. Not known for being brief. Um, the, um, I'm a professor of sport uh, and exercise psychology at the University of Wolverhampton. Um, I've been there since 2000. Prior to that, I was at Brunel University where I did all my degrees, uh, an undergraduate in sports studies, uh, right the way through to a part-time master's, which was the, the only part-time master's in the early 1990s. Then I did a PhD at Brunel, supervised by Peter Terry. I'm bases uh, accredited for research, sport exercise science chartered, BPS chartered, and uh, BPS examiner. So I've got the lot in terms of qualifications. That's not a boast, but a function of that. The over the in the pip in the past, from like 88 when I started my degree to where I are now, 30 years, I've kept on board, keeping the qualifications relevant. I think all those qualifications are worth keeping up to date. They may not have the punch in terms of getting your job that you might want them to do for people looking at trying to attain them now, but they are certainly worthwhile doing in terms of your own professional development. Um, my current job is I'm the director of our research area um, at the University of Wolverhampton, quite a lot of senior positions in terms of strategy, supervise a whole lot of PhD students, teaching on undergraduate courses more. Um, I come in and give specialist lectures across quite a few courses. I couldn't actually say which ones altogether. In the research methods, I come and offer some words of wisdom about the exciting, uh, <laughs> the exciting, I know you're nodding your head, the exciting um, possibilities that statistics can bring to the, the question of unravelling what goes on in the world right the way through to the excitement in terms of developing research questions, trying to, trying to, um, trying to say what they actually mean in reality. I, um, I never said I could do it briefly, but that is a rough summary of what I've been doing. Thanks for that introduction, Andy. Well, I only shake my head because that's probably my bad experience with research methods. It's, I wasn't a big fan of it when I was at university, but like you say, it, it's, it teaches you the statistics and you also need it to do your coursework, so it's not... I mean, the, right from the start, I, I mean, as a practitioner, um, as a researcher, the, the, you're, you're, I'm, a, in essence, a, have a scientific approach. You're trying to look for consistencies, trying to set up hypotheses, as, and hypotheses delimit where you're going, is that we think if an athlete's got nerve issues with nerves, we are saying, well, issues with nerves, if we address that, we, we're going to get certain outcomes. We're, so we are delimiting our work based on our evidence. The reason we have to be really good at research methods is that we have to be able to sort out what is good data from poor data, what studies which are where the where the evidence is well supported by the by the numbers that are generated, where the numbers that are generated by the methods that are used, whether questionnaires, whether observation, whether physiological. Um, um, direct physiological measurements, we really have to know what they mean. And we really have to look at how that data is collected, where it's collected, all the social issues. It's, it's a, it is a really difficult job to do that and do it well. So it's, I, it, the getting your knowledge on research methods really good is the dirty job. It's the uninteresting job, but it is the most one of the most worthwhile things that anyone can do in their development. Because so many... 
God, I don't look at so you know, I'm a, in the on the JS Journal of Sport Sciences. I'm the editor for Psych and that. Uh, so many papers are rejected in essence because they're poor methods, poor methodology. They're not defending the. They're not presenting good arguments to, for the defense of why we did this, why we did this, what we could have done, what are the threats to our reliability, validity. Um, and it's just sort of, so we use this questionnaire because everyone else has done their thoughts, fine. Right, okay, but let's just cut this, let's put our head in the sand, let's be an ostrich, <laughs> bury ourselves from the possibilities that someone might look at this questionnaire and go, God dear, that's, those numbers aren't giving me what I need. Or those numbers aren't, aren't those numbers are different to the reality of what we, of actually what we're trying to study. With that, is it a basis that some people aren't uh, questioning, going about, say, just kind of not questioning why they got those results and just following a trend that, or if that that, um, sort of questionnaire worked for somebody else, it should work for mine, as opposed to questioning it, well, if these, if I've got these results, but that study got something else. Why is why is that the case? It's a bit of both, isn't it? But look, the, the, I think one of the reasons we don't get into research methods is not the interesting question. It's not the, the our interest is if it's how do we get people to perform better? How do we get people to stick to exercise for longer? It's that's the tool we're going to use. The um, torturous reading regarding whether. Of the article, the validation article that used a clever statistic, which takes three days to try and work out what one number means, isn't the, isn't we, we go we then go oh how can we shortcut that? We don't we don't do that deliberately. But it isn't the key driver. We accept that that's been used lots of times. It's been okay for them to use it. We accept, and but our and our main search area of interest is something else. Easily skip over it. Easily skip over it. It's not. It's and what student is going to be inspired to say, oh, we can really do with a new measure of this? Really? Where do we start from that? Well, you like to be reading a lot about how to look at reliability. Um, okay. And that's not as exciting as someone saying, let's look at an intervention to make people more confident. Let's, you, can you introspect on your own um, experiences because that will give you some insight into um, – um, why your confidence was a bit fragile in places. That's a good starting point. And that's an exciting bit of research rather than going, actually, let's look at, let's look at what reliability is. But if we then take it, we then want to measure, we want to, we want to measure and we want some science behind it, then um, we're going to need a really good tool. And we'd struggle. So the, the, um, it's it's not exciting work, but it is something that's it's ongoing and it's difficult and it's something that we all should be. It's not, I don't think we're going to get it right. I just think we should be really happy to challenge ourselves to say actually the portion of error that went on in that study is probably a good expert is, is is a good is a large factor that could explain some of the results because we get some results that go really well. We love it, and it might well be for one reason to do with something, some social factor that's going on within there. Oh, it's just one of those. But then coming back to the point with you say error, it's I think for people outside of the academic field, they'd probably be horrified to some extent with how, how um, well, that's probably why I look at polls to now 
nowadays in a different light because with science was it it's to have a perfect study was it between 95 and 99 percent in that to, and to be a positive test if i remember rightly and if you put that into the real world uh say for politics for just as an example uh isn't their poll uh being manip- manipulative because it's that's not a, that's not a hundred percent poll to start with, and then and how far are you actually going relative to that that poll the 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 actual sample size to get yeah, the numbers? Yeah, of course. I mean, the, but part of that, the, well, the big point of that is is our interpretation of the data and how much we emphasise it. Uh, and it's easy to get carried away and try to make big bold claims. Um, but you can only be your claims should only be couched in your data. And the acceptance that the data may not be as good as what you think it is. The, you know, the statistical significance is a very easy thing to get. It's very easy to get anything to work. And we, I mean, our study with the BBC, Can You Compete? Um, 50, uh, depending on how you look, depending on which, if you, all of the data, it's 100,000 people completed an online experiment to investigate the effects of sport and exercise psychology interventions compared to contrast and absolutely everything everything is statistically significant. So when SPSS flies results out, there are no P, significance equals naught, 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 naught to the, to the default. Mm-hmm. You, click, you can find out what the exact number is, you can click into that, and it keeps racing away. Right? So wh- wh- whatever the res- relationship is, it's significant. Right? There's a one or two that aren't significant, which are quite remarkable, because they're not significant. But if you, I mean, you read studies where they talk about statistical significance without talking about this, how big the difference was, how strong the relationship was, and you go, must be significant, that must be good then. Our undergraduates, I sit with them, they, so they look for significance. Their eyes light up <laughs> when it's statistically significant, as if, as if you've, you're brought out and said, it's a boy, it's a son, there you go, oh, I've got a baby, I've done something well. Uh, the, is it, the light, um, it isn't so important. It's the size of the effect, which is much more important. And the, the, whether the um, effect is significant or not is can be so easy, so easy to be manipulated. If you don't do a power calculation, which is sometimes very difficult, to, and to gather the amount, to gather the supposed estimated size, and you just go, I'll tell you what we'll do is we will go out and get a big sample. You'll get, always get significance. Scared students, undergraduates, where the system isn't really. Um, so robust and nail them down to get power and get into all that discussion to because it's very difficult to estimate the power when you don't know what the likely effect size is. Just go out and get a large sample. Everything will come out significant. The ease in which they can say the study worked for their undergraduate goes up massively. Makes them happy in a, in a, in a sense that, that supports what they want to find. But it doesn't make it good research. And within the, and you ramp that up a few levels in journals, you get like quite a few studies which have come out where um, the findings are a little bit unclear, and, and authors are quite are quite offering very very powerful messages about its own significance. So when they come to JSS under my edition, we tell them we want to know what the result was, we want to know what the effect size is, we want to know what the practical reality is. We, what we want is, and we bring this back down, so if this was you, and you are about to go, and I'm, I'm, I'm supporting you as an athlete, and I'm your psychologist, I'm looking for some evidence from the literature. I want to know if any, anything is any good. 
I don't want it to be statistically significant with a 1% better, 1% variation, because I could, I mean, we can have a conversation and you can say, I tell you what, I, I feel really well, it's not you, but, but you know, I feel really well when I, have a, um, when I wear my lucky socks. I feel beliefs, erroneous beliefs regarding other factors can have, a big, can have, can have powerful influences. Yeah, the the um, you want your science to have a big effect. You want your science to have a meaningful effect, and you want to look into the you want you want to be guided by the literature, and you want that literature to offer something a little bit more than something a little bit better than lucky socks. So a good effect and a good explanation as to why. So does it come back to harpen back to well, you should want to challenge the current literature that's out there, and obviously to um, enhance it so that the well in the out in the real world people are actually making progress from it and actually getting something from it is that more, what you can take from that the the um the, the i started doing my research with anxiety um in 1990 1994 <laughs> our undergraduates aren't, aren't born there now that's so that it does really make me feel old um, we've collected data on duathletes and triathletes, and we used the CSIA2 with the directional scale. And I, we, we went out prior to a race, and we handed these questionnaires out. And the direction, people would just look at that directional scale, and they'd offer some struggle, they, they would struggle with what they would want. So lots of people said, well, what, what, on this bit here, which one, what does that mean? On this bit here, what does that mean? So you've got a method issue that's going on there that, that simply because they're asking, there's an interpretation of what should be happening. And you go, yeah, and several hours of these sorts of questions is quite tiring for the researcher collecting the data, suggesting that there's an issue here, there's an issue here. Intuitively, you know that people, when they feel anxious, think that that's not necessarily a bad thing. That's not. Some people do, other people don't. But the concept is really good, but the measurement of that is really difficult in that sense because people are, I'm as a researcher, are having trouble getting numbers back from people. They're, having, they're telling me they're having trouble filling out that questionnaire. So it suggests that there's something going on with that. If you're you, I mean, that in itself should raise quite alarm, it did raise alarm bells to me in a sense that, well, what actually am I getting from this? process in terms of people completing this questionnaire as to how many people really understand what's been asked of them, how much junk data am I getting from people who are uncertain, quite a few people have put naught down for everything. Um, it, so in other words, the process of asking the question was causing a little bit of an issue. And I've, I've agreed that the, um, I've, I mean, you had Steve Merlion on previous guest. Steve and I had a great debate in one of that literature on that. It's quite, if you want to read, if you want, I mean, it's, it's really good debate because um, it, we polarise our arguments as to where we're going. And I think, I think that came out in the noughties, early, a few years along. But we really polarise our, our arguments, which is good for debates, rather than, rather than very early on agreeing with each other and sort of picking at the edges. We polarise each argument each time and go, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong. But it is, the, 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 from, the, from my experiences of that, is to go actually we really do I as a uh, in 95 
did come up with the idea that I need to understand what our questionnaires put together. If we're using questionnaires, what is the process through which somebody tries to introspect their inner experiences before they come up with a number? So that as I'm feeling, do I know that? So the first, am I concerned about this competition? Right? So prior to being presented with that question, um, had I thought about that as a concept? And now I've been. Now you've asked me. How do I then feel about it? How, now the prompting of that question has that changed my perception of. Um, um, uh, so that's that. Those emails aren't flashing on the screen, are they? No. Okay, good. Um, let's just whoosh across the top. And um, as as that changed my the perception of. Um, of me as a as as me going into that environment because in other words has the researcher got an effect when that there is that's a really important issue the effect of the, the social part of collecting the data does that have an effect on the data you bring back and we've looked at different another studies we've looked at doing bit, bits of that and our research in emotion is all you know it relies quite heavily on self-report so getting that bit right is quite getting that bit as best right as possible is quite important Later on in our research, we, we've tried to look at measures of within competition or within performance emotions, and that raises the issue of, if you ask somebody how angry you are, what is, is that prompting them to regulate their anger when they say seven out of seven? Because the point of you saying, I'm really angry, actually then prompts you to say, do I want to be really angry? And all those all of those um, processes will, go, will, will occur in non-consciously, immediately, at, at the point of being questioned. So, so, yeah, so from that, do, do you think that the certain questions somebody asks manipulates the answer you're going to get? Of course it does. It primes it, doesn't it? It primes the answer. So, and the, then there's the um, how it's been asked also primes the answer. Then it's the thoughts of the of the audience to what the receiver is going to have in terms of you know, the, the, if the research is done in an area and I ask students and I prime the students and I tell them all about my work and they think well my work's great and then I start doing research into it they have been primed positively to respond to this that it's worthwhile doing if nothing else they give me really honest answers I've at least encouraged them to do worthwhile research um, which I think is really important in terms of well, it is really important because we want most of those. It's really difficult to detect when someone is just taking part in your study with no interest in the questions because you're not going to easily tease them out. And if they, they can give extreme scores and bias results massively or they can go, or, or not, but it's, it complicates the science. It complicates the science. And is there a way of not getting that bias by asking certain questions. How, how would you go about not getting a bias in that way then by obviously the, the See, question I think you, you ask? Sorry, I think you just accept the bias. I think you accept there's always some degree of bias um, and then you try to, you can do studies to try and overcome those. But then like, we get into the difficulties of um, setting the study up, don't we? In that, it, the, the BBC study, we had Michael Johnson doing the providing the interventions, which is great. You know, this is really great, isn't it? That you write interventions and Michael Johnson narrates them. On the, and we had to work with the just We worked with the BBC to these 
things like self-talk, and we, we then present the, narrate, the narrative to Michael Johnson, who came over, who's, who does the acting to film them. The, you know, the, there's a point where he reads it, where your credibility as the practitioner comes um, is questioned, because Michael's going to read it and go, or could go, no one will say that. Didn't, but there is, I mean, you know, the, when we set up, set up studies or we offer intervention work, there is a part where as you suggest something the feedback on it as to whether it gives you really difficult time creates some degree of emotional response from you as the researcher practitioner it's thinking through how you can minimize that and how you can control for it and account for it um, in our bbc study for example the control group which is a group that just gets michael just saying pretty bland stuff think he was think that was brilliant information Right? We didn't tell them they're in the control group, they just landed into it. So, but what you've got very nicely is that people who join up for interventions that where it works, where they think it's going to work, tends to work. It's nice work. I and mean, we did another study with the um, magazine Runner's World where we signed, same kind of thing, signed people up for an intervention based on an, an online intervention, which, which the online intervention is quite good because it standardizes delivery which is one thing I quite like about the Michael Johnson one. Every single person got the same length of intervention. It was delivered in exactly the same way because they all watched the same videos. Everyone in one condition got the same videos. And therefore, we can standardise what, what the individual received, which we can't do when it's done in a... In, we can't do it that way. can't always do it that way unless it, people are delivered the intervention all at the same time. But there was a degree of standardization that rates that quite well. And there's also in online interventions, you can standardize it because everyone's looking at the same film, same bit of footing, which makes it therefore quite useful. Um, so the, 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 there is a way, so that gives you an insight into how your methods could then be biasing your or influencing your results. But I think the researcher and practitioner's got to go in thinking, well, hold on, um, how are how are these, how is the questions influencing um, the responses we're going to get back? And it just, it becomes re a really enlightening for me as a researcher and practitioner, enlightening to try and guess how that's going to occur and, th and then try and hypothesize as to why and then see if you can it, it, it either offer a way of interpreting the data in the way that it's presented or trying to change the data um, so that you collect different data. I'll give you a, a good example of that. Is that we've used a scale called the Brunel Mood Scale in thousands and thousands and thousands of studies. And I got into that because when my wife did her MSc, I was her data collection person, helper. I was the person who handed out the felt tip pens and collected the questionnaires back and I handed them out. We, did, we collected hundreds of these, hundreds if not thousands of these over a couple of days at the London Youth Games, but also 94. And people completed this with real ease. So I thought this is great, great questionnaire. And then when I started using it to predict performance as part of my PhD in the early 90s, I was going to like depression. And I was trying to make sense of the profile and mood states scales, why they should be influential with this notional iceberg, which was always a bit questionable. Really try to go, actually, why do they, as I look, started looking at them, vigor, yeah, feeling energetic, that should be positive. You feel energetic, feel alert, excited, that should be a good thing to feel. And detention, that's anxiety. Some people, you know, 
do well on tension, other people don't do well, understand all that, all the directional anxiety stuff provides real insight into why, what's going on in there in terms of people's mind, really good. Depression, you go, what depression as a, as a mood state, as an emotional state, feelings of loss, feelings of hopelessness, feelings of sadness, feelings of dejected, low activation states. Well, what's that good for? What's that good for? Surely if someone is feeling dejected, surely that's not going to be a motivated state. So you go, okay, well, that's, that's the hypothesis. You then look at the literature and you go, God, there's a lot of studies that show no effect. You know, what's going on here then? Is, this, uh, is it that some people find feeling dejected quite motivating? Right. At the time, I thought, mm, unlikely. So I then, within, I then started with our data sets looking at the, de- the depression scale and looked at how that was scored. It was typically low, as you'd expect. Athletes prior to competition, athletes prior to it. Most people, most of the time, are not feeling very depressed. When I started looking at it in greater detail, I thought I found most people, over 50%, put zero for everything. Okay, well, that makes sense because they're not feeling very depressed. And then another great proportion of people put only one or more. So I said, okay, well, I wonder if there are much differences between people who put zero and one. Right? And just started looking at the data that way. And the differences in all the other mood states, emotional states, was colossal. So from a zero, one honest questionnaire from 0 to 16 with four items, so you have four opportunities to put more than one, where you put one down on one of those scales, you get a massive difference in the other emotional states, which to me suggests that people are hiding their depression. So when presented with, do you feel downhearted? They will look at that and be fully aware of the consequences of putting any, anything high on it, in a, and then just put zero. Where they put one down, we then get to feel that they're confused, fatigued, tired, not feeling vigorous, and the effect sizes for those differences are really high. So we, instead of, I mean, in other studies, what we've done later on is we thought, actually, uh, waiting for someone to feel dejected, depressed, dejected is not a good state. And we did this with the, we did, we worked with the GB biathlon team as we took them to altitude in, and we were, tra- we were testing, because altitude makes people feel knackered really early. Um, uh, it's not a good thing. So we wanted to intercept really early on when they're at a training camp to stop them feeling really sort of the negative emotional state. So we brought in um, happiness scales. That was quite good to get a full range of happiness, and the idea that happiness deteriorates before depression kicks off was, is quite a, a useful way within, a, within subject to try and detect when... Depression will, uh, when people put zero down for happiness, we have a, often have a couple of days of zero, zero for depression and ha- happiness, and then depression would kick off. So we got a, a, so we started getting some methods for within variation emotional states to detecting when people start getting knackered as a poor response to training. Uh, um, if you're not acclimatizing to altitude, everything feels exhausting. I, I wish I had someone bringing me a cup of tea as well. <laughs> I haven't got that. So, so why do people um, look to hide that emphasis of depression? The the idea, the whether um, it's something to do with how we an expectation of how we should feel. So, quite the media talk about within the media confidence. 
being a really key factor, feeling really positive, interviews with athletes, it's all about being confident. The the idea that you need to be very efficacious as an athlete goes back to Muhammad Ali with his proclaimed statement of the greatest, the, the, the acting confident prior to competition. When, when have you ever heard prior to uh, a sports event that athlete been interviewed and feel and, and said, educated, I feel rubbish today. <laughs> I'm going to go out there and it's going to be no better than average. Right? It's going to be no better than average. All the time they go, yeah, I feel good. So they self they self present to them a way that um, uh, is is um, positive. Now whether they the in front of the media camera gives you a clear idea of who the audience was and therefore as that camera comes or your agreement to do it, the, the, the process of just thinking what you're going to say starts. And it's, might, might not, it's, not, it's unlikely to be deliberate, but it's, it's likely to be, well, this is how I want to be presented. In a research-based questionnaire, the prompting of that, I think people just want to... Uh, there's a little bit of... I'm not. I am not ready to open out the full works of my negativity. Okay. Well, that's mm-hmm. quite. That's quite interesting. And, and like, like you said, between zero and one, mm. you could probably say to a little, little degree that is probably higher up the scale. It's probably mm. some people that are not shying away from it to a certain extent, but they don't want to tr- show their true selves. That probably something that you. Would probably be to some degree true. I think so. I think that within the context of prior to sport, I think your, your competition heads on. It's the last thing you want to be admitting to. So you are actually trying to psych yourself up. You're actually aware of the negative potential, sometimes negative feelings or unpleasant feelings, um, more likely physiological feelings related to excessive needs to go to the toilet, which is most athletes. Um, which start questioning whether you're going to feel right, which, which start questioning whether you're going to feel right when the competition starts. And therefore, it's not, it's not a deliberate biasing act, but it is, an, it is part of a process which people are, are not necessarily going to give the best answer. When you work with someone for a long period of time, you see that how they respond to questionnaire scores differs. So that zero, zero, 001 works well with people who are quite new to that questionnaire when people have been doing it for a long period of time you get a feedback to it so when you someone presents you have a conversation about their mood profile and as they get used to it they will then go actually I, I need a bit of variation here because what you said I, I was feeling a bit low you know it's not deliberate encouragement to have completed differently but they start the trust between you and the person increases and therefore they open up a bit more with their questionnaires the zero ones doesn't occur so much when you know someone a great period of time because they've, they've worked out the process of, of being of opening up of using this permits what allows people to want to use the scale and this is I'll give you a really good example of this is when we've done work on emotional intelligence coping um, where people are, are, yeah, can you cope with difficult situations and you go up to people um, in groups and very high scores. They then put them on an intervention, which the intervention typically makes them aware of their skills, strategies, um, 
how effective they have coped in those situations. There's awareness raising. In essence, they've given themselves nowhere to go by being top of the scale to start with. You then put them through experiences which are, which are designed to make them question themselves. They often don't get any better on the scale. The scale as a mark of effectiveness is, is poor in that regard. Because they've got no, a, they've got nowhere to go because they're eight or nine at seven, eight, nine or ten on the scale. They're either eight, nine or ten. Really, they they will reflect later on, saying, "I wish I'd have put seven down, and now I'm eight because actually I realised I wasn't so good. I've got quite a bit better, but I, I'm now an eight, and I truly rate myself as an eight. I just got nine on at the start. And that's the qualitative bit on the post-evaluation intervention work that comes out." But the numbers on the scales don't allow that. So Which, from, from, from a personal experience, mm. for things like that, is it better to be more, to some degree, negative when you're looking? Say, be a bit more, uh, not negative in a way, but um, what's the word I'm trying to think of? Thinking that you're lower, then obviously there's a bit more room to, to improve as opposed to thinking, well... I'm this, or I think I'm better at this, and you, you actually, if you were analysed from outside looking in, you're probably not as good as, as you think you are. Yeah, the, the, um, the, 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 so you're an athlete in a training camp, Pum pops along, gives you a questionnaire, and it's in essence how, how mentally tough you are. All right, so I'm going to put you on a mental toughness training Program. I'm going to get this baseline data now. Um, you know, be as honest as possible. You look at the questions, and you go, oh dear. Um, do you think select? Do you think they might be selecting off this? Do you think they might want to know who's really who, who's going to be because they're going to, who's going to be really tough? Do you think that looking around, other people are going to put low scores for this? All of this will occur non-consciously in a social environment where you're set with other people or you start and not consciously but you'll be aware that you're about to engage in a dialogue which if you put one out of ten down not mentally tough scared to do all this don't want to do this that's not going to trigger someone to go well is that person really set for our sport where we're about to put them under real stress um so they're not may not may want to put higher scores as a basis of self-protection or or and I think this is also totally true is that they don't know you know the part that you put them on an education program to make them aware that they go yeah I thought I had strategies to cope with these difficult scenarios and I don't my strategies were not as good as I thought they were and therefore I wasn't as high as I thought I was and now that I've got more better strategies now that I've got, now that the strategies I've got, I, are, I can use, and they will, and they work better. Then I feel more self-confident. I feel more resilient. I feel more mentally tough because when I get into a situation which is put, putting me under pressure, I know what to do and how to do it. And which, what what sort of strategies could you put in place to help? Would you uh, would help you to deal with emotions? The, I mean, the model we've been looking at. It's an, and it's an interesting discussion with, with resilience, mental toughness, coping, emotion regulation. Uh, I think the best model is one of proactive coping, 
where you go, okay, well, what are the, what is the challenge you're about to go and do? And so what you get from that challenge, you go, what resources will I, or will I, or could I require if this challenge goes all wrong? So what resources will I, shall I get with me ready? Either real resources, um, or ones that are psychological skills. Identify those, practice those, and then they go in the tool bag with you. Um, it, I mean, the lovely example is where we work with a female a solo explorer to the uh, going to the South and North Pole. Um, and the, the, I mean, the interview, we did an interview which talked about her coping strategies. Uh, it's so inspiring because you've got this quite small, physically small um, person who's mental, mental mountain in terms of her mental toughness to overcome. And she talks about world, you know, death-ending scenarios of fear, of the environment cracking around, and then how she copes with those potentially difficult challenges uh, and anticipated them, and how she was... Um, and. Uh, and had really clear strategies for doing that. A simple one, really simple one, is that she knew she had to get her tent up and she had to get her gas fire up. The, it's minus 30, and you know that you haven't got very long in order, you haven't got very long before you will stop generating heat from movement, before you need to get everything warmed up, before you have to get setting up. But you know that in order to get your gas fire up and your tent up, you have to take the outer thick layer of gloves off. And you know that as you take the outer thick layer of gloves off, it's going to be really cold. And you, then within that next period, is you've got to absolutely trust your ability to do those next series of tasks. So the gloves come off, you realise that it's going to be really cold, really difficult. The anxiety of if you don't do this next task in a certain amount of time, frostbite will kick in, and that's disastrous. Um, so you, you break that down, work that down. Behaviourally, they're really good at the task you're going to do, so you're really confident in doing it. And therefore, that challenge, which is life-threatening, limb-threatening, uh, very difficult on, at, the, at the point when you're about to do it, because you're, you go into that into that you go into that task tired because it's going to come near the end of the day, cold because it's it's starting to get really cold. So you need to be um, psychologically up for a, in, a, in a physiologically really difficult state. To build up the resources ready to get into that by practicing at the at specific skills and being able to do that really, really tidily. But that's that, that, that. What's happened there is we've identified the demands of the task in ice, and then built little strategies in so each one's overcome, so that you, so that you're a good coper around that different situations. In that in that in that case study, some really nice parts, which is also about social support, which is really good, which. In terms of, you look at the, in terms of, sort of current, some of the current um, media regarding athletes coming out with um, indicating depression. Ricky Hatton really nicely the other day talked about the inner, the, his inner, his inner, the, nice, not nicely, nicely because it showcases that even the toughest struggle with these, his inner, his inner demons with depression, his inner demons with self-harm. He's a, someone, he's a t really tough man who goes in with Costa Zoo, takes hard punches, but his own inner thoughts tear him apart. He's in a sport where mental toughness about you take it on, you're the champion, you're the best, is all about, it's all around there. The, so the, 
the the presenting yourself in a t- in that confident way is all about that sport, um, as it is in many sports. By him coming out with that and saying, I really struggled with that, I think it opens up what is a massive gap in our ability to support athletes is the need for that social connection. It's when the elite athlete who, or any athlete or any person realises that their own coping skills um, or, or to cope, social support is absolutely vital and to, and to know how to use those social support skills how to know them and to draw on them and absolutely no way see that asking for help or sharing your problem or or however way you do that is seen as a weakness. So I think that's really important. But does it come back to um, more so from the male perspective of this uh, outlook of the male bravado? I I want to be seen as tough and not... um, Obviously, depression and whatnot is just looked badly upon. It's um, possibly, um, but it's certainly something to be, it's, it's something to be um, aware of and something to so actually. Is, are there a gender issues? I mean, that's a good research question, isn't it? Is there a big gender differences that goes on that male um, male athletes are particularly vulnerable to that? We absolutely know that young males, nineteen to twenty-five, the biggest cause of death is suicide. So we absolutely know they're a group at risk. And so the, within, within our males are brought up, the, um, 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 the need for the, the, the encouragement for general programs in schools to encourage people to be able to ask for support or to be able to use support that's available. Because you might not need to ask. Asking for it is one thing. Actually going and using it is another matter. It's what it's, you know, there's been an also a growth um, in online support in clinical psych about which allows people to access services and I know some people when you suggest that because we've suggested in sports psych with our Michael Johnson work and our runners world stuff we think that online support I think online support's really good because people can dip in and out however much they want they can self-regulate regarding um, you, know, you want training environments online for people to have lots of goes at it which is, I think is really good um, people to be able to go and do this training online, be really badly at it, and not worry about it because there's not a th- there's not someone watching you do it. So if you have to go to see someone and do something in someone else, there's a potential there's an anxiety about how badly you are at that. Um, which 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 if you anticipate that, like if you anticipate that you are will mean that you won't actually engage with the practice to begin with. You think someone's watching you, judging you, you won't want to, and you don't think you can do very well. It's, it's an encouragement not to do it. The, um, the, the so the potential is that males males will struggle with that. The with us, just with our explorer, it was interesting, and we've had this with we did this with, with um, male athletes on a ride across America. Is that she didn't want, she couldn't cope with information back home. About how her family were whilst on the whilst on the explorer trip, it had to be contained to only be the exploration. So the social support part that you get yourself in a mindset of coping with that fierce environment to hear about how your family getting on um, was was, a, was was information which were too stressful. Just I mean, so there's there's quite a lot of work in terms of the. Um, how the supporters can help um, 
with athletes in terms of their um, gaining social support. Because often, with the, the you know, certainly when I've worked with, when I work with a professional boxer, we've got a lot of, this is interesting, is that we've got lots of well-wishers, family, friends coming up to the boxer quite close to the competition going, go on, you can do this, go on, you can do this. And, it's, and it was quite, you know, go on, you can knock him out, that sort of thing. All great, all great, all motivating, inspiring, all arousing. Uh, the first couple of fights, they had quite a bit of access to him going going in, and he thought, crikey, this is changing our tactic. We've just spent two months on a tactic against this opponent, and we are getting it. He's getting information that's, that is which is counter to the counter to the emotional state we want at the start, counter to the mindset we want at the start. It's really so, re- and we're not certain that that he needs that building up because he wants to be calm. He said he wants to be calm. It's what they need to do. All those friends and family want to wish well, to, want to want to um, uh, want, want to provide that sort of support. So it's, it's for their emotional regulation, not his, that they're doing it for. But they are arguing it's for theirs. I'm going to go and cheer. I need to go and, I need to go and wish him well. But actually, it's a massive about their cheering their, making them feel good about themselves because they've contributed to that to that process. So there's, a, there's two parts. One is the encouraging the athlete and the individual to know how to access how to access help, whether that's whether that's um, to do something they do themselves or or people they go to speak to. And then there's a massive amount of work to do on how people in their local local support groups can actually help the athlete. Because it doesn't oh sometimes it doesn't have to be much. Lovely one on the right across America, um, lo- where. Um, one of the riders is feeling really down. All the support guys did. He just sort of just just made him a cup of tea. Made him a cup of tea and says, "Almost, it's okay to feel shit. You know, it's, it's okay. You don't have to be pumped up all the time. It's okay to feel really to be down. Just just spend a bit of time." And there's quite a lot. They'd come in from the come in, and there'd be lots of lots of how do you feel? That's great. Pumping up all the time. All, all quite good, but all quite tiring. All quite tiring. The actual trying to keep the environment quite positive, quite a lot of the stresses and strains of trying to keep big t- people on tours. So really, in other words, what the athlete needed, he recognised what he needed, he got from a very experienced practitioner who didn't do very much. Didn't do very much. But the experienced practitioner realised didn't need to do very much because not a lot was needed. Which, in other words, that person got that right without having to do a lot. So, so it comes back to um, the basis of well, treating each individual, uh, well, treating each individual individualistic uh, as to how they deal with each different different situations. Yeah, well, I mean, certainly on a consultancy level, then you need to do the um, um, as you push on towards competition, each person's going to require different things. The, there's certain general things that are good practice that you can apply. Um, but the, certainly understanding that environment of what works well for individuals helps. I mean, certainly it's in, it's in soccer, in football, as an example, some players like to like it calm before the game. Others like to bash around and get trash around. Uh, the simple intervention is to get the calm ones sitting near each other. 
and get the loud ones sitting near the, near each or near each other. Um, because you put the calm one next to the noisy one, and it's just stressful. You put the cut the uh, for the noisy one. The calm one is sending a signal that you don't care. Because his method of interpreting or her method of interpreting how we get up for a game is rousing everyone up. The, the, the working the organisational shift doesn't have to be doesn't have to be massive in terms of making a big difference, but just recognising that um, the, other people affect each other's emotions. I've done it with runners when they warm up when they've warmed up and they they come up and they got back to you and they go you're right you can see something they're not very confident and they've gone and warmed up with a group of people or near a group of people. And all one has to say was that says, "Oh, you're looking really good today. You're probably going to win." You think, "Oh, crikey!" Just like the boxer, someone has shifted that mindset, put a thought into their mind really late on, at a point when they're quite emotional, and it's sent off a dialogue of thoughts which are not the way we want to go. Um, solution to that is to not warm up with that group. Very simple. You stop the damage going from others. The emotions being translated, different thoughts being translated. So it can be quite simple. But everyone warms up at the same time. Everyone's doing the mm. same drills. That group are doing them together, and that one isn't. So if you had to wrap it all up, yeah. the whole podcast, into like a simple sentence so somebody Ooh. can take it home, yeah. what would you, what solutions would you say for people to do to be able to deal with emotions? No, the, the, um, the, yeah, so that's the what I would say is as practitioners, as athletes, is to get real understanding of what emotions you're feeling. Um, so if you are, and I think most people who are studying sports psychology or practicing should do studies on not studies on themselves to publish, but should take part. Should go, okay, I'm going to fill out this questionnaire, and I'm going to see how it relates to my performance. So really, it's the first thing to do is get a really good understanding of of how they complete these questionnaires or gather the method, the, me- the measures that they use, whether it's heart rate, variability. So how do I interpret that? Um, and what do I believe the results I'm getting? Can I offer counter explanations? If I get, if, are my inner stories, inner thoughts, feelings being captured enough to give that useful information? Because that's a starting point. Because if you are working with someone, whether they write a seven down on a scale, three down on a scale, or give you a sentence – what you're absolutely relying on then is to do is to be able to articulate what's going on inside, right? Whether it's because we can, I think questionnaires get bashed, but someone's got, bit, someone's got to be able to get access to that process really well. So the first thing is to do is how how well can you get access to that information? So, um, and which is the first part, and, fr- and from that is you can then work out what you want to do with it. And for many cases, in terms of our own emotions, once we've worked, once we've worked, realized what the intensities are and why we feel in those, we can then start thinking, well, what did I, the first thing, what did I do or what, or what, what have I done previously to change how I feel so I felt better, in, in however I define better? And has, is that a constant reoccurring theme in my life? So, you know, what was where I felt really anxious and anxiety was really negative, what went on in those situations, and look for common occurrences. And what you'll get from that is insight into your insight into the inner process of, of 
psychological measurement and how to ju- how to judge from that and how even you even you as an as the person completing it trying to be as honest as possible will recognize your own biases and your own judgments of oh, well, why didn't, why didn't i put a 7 down and an 8 why have i said i'm 8 in confidence why am i 7 why am i seven? really question yourself because those that's those be really useful to your interpretation and then if I want to get more confident, what do I need to do to get more confident? Go through scenarios in your own mind and then um, and then you can then test those out in, in you can then test those out in um in, in future situations. And then from that you've got an experiential basis of what, what's going on. You can read around the literature to boost boost that up, change it, challenge it, you look to the extent to which there are good tools to go along with that, you then look for studies that have gone with on with that you then look at the methods that studies have used to so say can that really apply and then from the methods you can then you then revise your, all your thinking reflect on what's going on and then you start thinking about um, either doing a study which tests its effectiveness which, which every practitioner should, should be thinking about to some degree even if it's a case study to be really rigorous in the methods that we evaluate it and you take it forward that way you know, you said give brief answers, right? and you know I said at the start, I'm stuck with. Yeah, can you actually? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's uh, uh, yeah. So, sorry, sorry about that. No, no, it's it's well, it's it's getting to it's finding your point, isn't it? It's it's how you make it as long as you need to to get. The Things point with me, across. I make it as long as it can be. <laughs> and then the final point, I've uh, question I'd like to ask you before we wrap the podcast up is. Um, if anybody had any future questions to ask you in the future, uh, what is the best method for them to get in contact with you via social media? If you go for Twitter, I'm really into Twitter now. I like tweeting away. And, and I, I, I mean, I say that as a joke, but I think Twitter's great for, for people in that you get really good, sometimes you get really good conversations going on. What you really get is, I mean, I follow people like, and, uh, Follow such so Stuart Biddle, uh, who, who and Nikos Demanis, who puts out articles, and he goes, and you get he, he then you get his really short summary and a fantastic link. It's like doing my reading for me. <laughs> but it is, I mean, they are selecting a reading list for you all the time. Brilliant. I mean, right, it's brilliant. And then you can ask them, well, what, did you, what did you think about that on Twitter? And then loads of people jump in and stuff like that. And so it's it's really useful. So. You, um, they can tweet me. I will tweet back, um, and then other people will join in. And the nice part is, I've done lots of most of my research with co-authors. All of those are on Twitter, so and they will all join in as well. Be like one great big academic, practical tweeting loving if they do it. And what is your Twitter handle? Uh, Andy Lane twenty seven. Okay, so which is my age, of course. <laughs> well, I have only been 27, 22 times. Is that the age that you you want to be then? Uh, no, no. The um, it's um, I set up an Andy Lane twenty seven Yahoo account as a joke. Um, the uh, it's the age for it's the age for it's, it's the age pre children. Okay. Um, life all changes when children occur. So um, I don't know really to. to it's an ongoing joke. Uh, Greg White is Greg White, twenty-seven as well. In his, in, he's just denying the fact that he's fifty this year. That's, that's <laughs> uh, yeah. 
who, who and I went to college together, so I'm, I have free, free reign for jokes about him. Well, it's it's good. It's good to be able to take the mickey out. Of, he does the same back. Don't worry. You wow. should see his professorial. Have a look if anyone wants to look at his professorial talks on YouTube. Um, at Liverpool, John Moores and John Dickinson, who's his former PhD student, reader at Kent, right, is savaged. <laughs> <laughs> savaged by Greg's jokes in that. <laughs> I might, I might have to have a look at that. It's funny. Greg's talks are very, very funny, very good. So, Andy, once again, thanks for coming on the show. And for everybody else, this podcast will be aired every Thursday. So until next week, I will see you next